you know anybody, I'm sure you do, who is seemingly an endless source of useless knowledge. You know anybody like that? Raise your hand. Don't elbow them. I know there's a few of them here. You're looking at them, and that's you. Just useless knowledge. You know, just useless facts. They seem to know a lot about everything. And it's this obscure kind of stuff that nobody else knows. It's like they sit around and read the dictionary or the, the encyclopedia all day long. My dad is like that. I think he, we had a set of encyclopedias. He read every volume. I thought, Dad, what are you doing? That, that's the most boring. Well, you learn a little something. I'm okay. You know, the dad reads the encyclopedias, you know. And here's some useless facts. Maybe some of you already knew this, but for the rest of us, we'll be enlightened. All right? So those of you that with, with useless knowledge, here you go. Be- I, I don't speak from personal experience on this person, by the way. Beetles taste like apples, wasps like pine nuts, and worms like fried bacon. Now, some of you knew that. Some of you tried that. Some of you uh, had beetles yesterday for lunch, and you had, you know, it tastes like that. And, and uh, human thigh bones are stronger than concrete. Did you know that? What about that? Your heart beats over 100,000 times a day. Useless knowledge. Didn't know that. There is a city called Rome on every continent. How about that? Right-handed people, on average live nine years longer than left-handed people. Well, that's something. Everybody who's left-handed just switched, right? You just switched over. I'm left-handed. You just switch right on over. The elephant is the only mammal that can't jump. Useless knowledge. It means nothing. One quarter, 25% of the bones in your body are in your feet. I have no idea. Like fingerprints, everyone's tongue print is different. You're going to try that on the bulletin now and figure it out. I would not recommend, though, that you put ink on your tongue to try to figure that out. You know, most, this is, this is gross. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. You probably knew that. So every time you sweep underneath the couch or the bed or whatever, you're just sweeping yourself right up off the floor. There you are. You, literally, you're beside yourself right there. Women, women blink nearly twice as much as men. All the guys are going to try not to blink, and all the ladies are going to find out if that's true. I'm going to distract you, I guess. Honey is the only food that does not spoil. Honey found in the tombs of Egyptian pharaohs has been tasted by archaeologists and found edible. That's interesting. So instead, what do you store up? What do you go? You go get bread and milk and batteries and and flashlights and stuff, and we're going to have big storms. Go get honey. It'll never spoil. There you go. Months that begin on a Sunday will always have a Friday the 13th. Did not know that. Coca-Cola would be green if coloring weren't added to it. That's gross. I'm glad they add coloring to it. I don't think I would drink it if it were green. The average lead pencil will draw a line 35 miles long or write approximately 50,000 English words. How about that? It's against the law to burp or sneeze in a church in Nebraska. Just remember, if you ever visit Nebraska, a church, they're going to arrest you and take you out. The world's oldest piece of chewing gum is several thousand years old. It's disgusting. The longest recorded flight of a chicken is 13 seconds. How about that? And an ostrich's eye is bigger than its brain. Useless, absolutely useless knowledge. Now, you're going to impress somebody later on. They're going to think you're really smart. And all you did was regurgitate what I just told you. But, you know, there are a lot of people that are like that. They've got a lot of useless knowledge. 
They know a lot of things, but they really do them a whole lot of good. You can't make a living off knowing that an ostrich's eye is bigger than its brain. You really can't make a living on that. Nor can you make a living on knowing that there's a city called Rome on every continent. It just doesn't make any difference. Or even knowing what beetles or worms taste like. It just doesn't matter. You can have your head full of really interesting but useless knowledge. Get you nowhere. How would you like it if all the things that you knew added up to nothing? So you know a lot of stuff, but it means absolutely nothing. How would you like it? How would you like it if all the things you did in your life amounted to nothing? Nothing. Fruitless. Absolutely pointless. Does you no good. Accomplishes nothing in your life. Somebody said, well, you just described my life right there. I just, you know, how would you like it? What if the things that you did accomplished nothing at all? The book of James, when we get to the verses today, we'll see. James says that, that our attempts at religion can be just that, good for nothing, useless, accomplishing absolutely nothing, getting us nowhere, just like all the little facts on this piece of paper I just read to you. Sometimes, James says, our religion, our efforts at religion can be just like those bits of knowledge. Useless. Won't accomplish anything whatsoever. The truth is, there are many people who are like that. There are many people whose efforts at relationship with God or religion or whatever they want to call it really are useless. They say and maybe they do some things that, that seem right. They, they may... They sort of on the outside play the game, but on the inside, it's not making any difference. And James will say we'll call that useless, useless religion. So James's warning we'll see this, this morning is to beware of useless religion, both as individuals and as a church. So I want to, uh, to turn with you to James chapter 1. We have seen so far, I really... I love the book of James. I hope that you are enjoying the truth that's coming out of it. Certainly, it speaks in very practical terms. It is a great book, easy book to read. It's in the form of a letter. James is over in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, please just go to your table of contents there if you brought a Bible with you, and you'll look up the book of James over in the New Testament. It's a short book, about five chapters, and it's a letter written to, to Jewish Christians during the first century. So it's right after Jesus has left the earth. And James is writing to them, giving them some instructions on what does it really mean to be a Christian? What is, what is authentic Christianity? You had some folks, obviously, who've been converted from Judaism. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that Judaism became, well, this certainly was not God's intention, became very, very rules-oriented. Jump through the right hoops and so on. So you have these people who are converted from a faith that is simply about rules that they have made up. And now we're in a faith that's really based on just that faith, the relationship with Jesus. And so they needed to be instructed, needed to be taught, what do we do now? Now we place our faith, give our lives to Jesus, how do we operate? How do we avoid what James will say, useless religion? And so you certainly know if he has to write about it that there were people that were experiencing that. And our world is no different. James makes this great progression in chapter 1, talking about some tests of real faith. This is the seventh in our series so far, and we'll complete chapter one today, and next week we'll have a Memorial Day celebration. We'll do a little 
things a little different. We'll be in chapter 2 in a couple of weeks. But chapter 1, I think, is really interesting because it progresses naturally towards some tests of authentic faith. He starts off in verse 1. Look at it there. He says, I'm a slave of God. You remember that? The biography of an authentic Christian is just that. I am a slave of God, a slave of Christ Jesus. That's who I am. And so he starts it off by saying, look, your, your faith is now based upon this, that your devotion, your entire life is given to Jesus Christ. It's not about jumping through the right hoops anymore and doing all these things. It's, it's based upon slavery and devotion to Jesus Christ. Of course, we learned that that absolutely sets you free because you're either going to be a slave to this world or a slave to Jesus. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. And the other side of the coin is that the ruler of this world, Satan himself, has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so slavery to Jesus certainly is a freeing experience. So this progression then goes into some tests of authentic Christianity. We look first at the test of trials. How you handle difficult times in life reveals to a large extent the authenticity of your faith. Is it real or is it not? Is your faith real in the sense that when hard times come, you still hold fast to Jesus Christ, even though it's nerve-wracking, even though it's, it's upsetting, even though it makes you angry and so on, you still hold fast to Jesus Christ. He still is your devotion. You seek him for wisdom and so on. It's one test of authentic Christianity. And then we looked in verses 13 to 18 at the idea of temptations being a, a revealer of authenticity. And how do you handle temptation? Do you take it seriously? Do you take sin seriously? Based upon the fact that you take God and his standards seriously? So we looked at that. How do you respond in times of temptation? Do you get angry with God and say, well, I guess he just wants me to give in to this because he created the circumstances and I have no choice whatsoever? Or do you say, you know what? No, it's my responsibility. I will handle it. I will ask God to forgive me when I fall. And I will take responsibility to avoid temptation and sin. And then we saw a couple of weeks ago in verses 19 to 21 how our reception of God's Word is, is something that reveals the authenticity of our faith as well. Do we, do we hunger for God's Word? Is there something inside of us that says, you know what, that's where life is really found. I want more of that. I'm certainly not talking about that, that you never have a day where you say, well, you know what, I'm just, uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't study God's Word, didn't think about it. That's, that's not the point. But the direction of your life is such that I want more of what the Bible has to teach me. So I listen for it. I, I go after it. I receive it without getting angry when it convicts me or when it confronts my sin or something like that. So the reception of God's Word. Then last week, we looked at, at first our reaction to God's Word. And once it's chapter, chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, we say, be doers of the Word and not just hearers only. Great to hear it. Great to listen to it. Certainly to receive it. But you got to do it. And how that's a test of authenticity. There are a lot of people who will come and listen and soak it up and never do anything about it. You walk out the door and it's gone. James says, well, you, you, you have to understand that true and authentic Christians, those who are not just talking, actually do and live out what God's Word says. And so he kind of progresses toward these tests. And, and he goes, this morning we'll see, from that general idea of be a doer of the Word to some very specific categories in which... Uh, True, authentic Christianity is revealed in these specific things. I want to start this morning in, in verse 22, just going to give you a recap, help you see how this flows together. So look with me, James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and right away forgets what kind of man he was. 
The one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts, this person we bless what he does. Remember last week, gave you a mirror. If you were here last week, get a mirror. The idea was that God's Word really forms a mirror for us. We hold our lives up against it. And He reveals to us objectively whether or not we reflect what His Word is all about. And it, it reveals to us our sin, but it also reveals to us our Savior who covers our sin. So He says, when you see something in God's mirror, deal with it quickly. Make sure you apply it quickly. So He gives us this general overview. Be a doer of the Word who sees what God's mirror says to you and responds to it quickly. And then He goes to verse 26 and sort of narrows it down. If anyone thinks he is religious... Without controlling his tongue, but deceiving, there's that word again, deceiving his heart, his religion is what? Useless. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So understand, James moves from being a doer of the word, big general category, to here are some specific things that you can really get your arms around to see, is my faith real we're going to look at those this morning. So James has this progression showing that it's not about being religious in the sense that most folks would think, but it's about having a heart like God's, letting God lead and control your heart. And so as he talks about it, he makes it clear that there can indeed be forms of useless religion as well as a form of authentic Christianity. And I want to hope, I hope to show you this morning what each of those looks like, and then how do you know which path you're on? How do you know? So here's useless religion. There are folks who would who would look at verses 22 to 25 when it says, be a doer of the word. And they would respond to that and say, oh, okay, I, I just need to do a whole bunch of things. I just need to show up at church more often. You know, not really doing God's word. You know, maybe I need to volunteer somewhere. I mean, I, you know, I, need, to, I need to help some people. Or, or maybe I just need to, you know, I, I, I need to stop saying that. Or maybe I need to start doing this. Or Something along those lines. And, and, and a lot of times what folks will take is, well, okay, well, I can do all that. Just give me the checklist. Okay, so, so Sunday school's at 9 o'clock. Check. Worship is at 10. Check. Okay, and you guys meet on Sunday nights, too. Wow, okay. 6 o'clock. Check. Wednesday evening. All right, I, yeah, I can show up for me. Check. Oh, okay, we're, ha- we're having vacation Bible school. Yeah, I'll get some cookies. Check. And you see what can happen. Folks will take the scripture and say, oh, okay, I need to be doing something, and we'll begin to focus all on the external stuff of doing. And James says, hold on just a second. Before you start doing everything, understand where this comes from and how religion, those acts of doing, religious activities, they can get a little bit useless from time to time. There are two things, I think, in general, just characteristics of useless religion. You'll see those on the screen. You can write those down. I encourage you to do that on the back of your bulletin. The first is ritualistic. Useless religion is really just based on rituals. You know, what, what, what I mean by rituals? Well, it's all those checklists. It's the boxes on the checklist. You check that off. Oh, I did that. Okay. And well, next week I'll just do the same thing. It's just kind of my ritual to do that. Is there anything wrong with a habit? No. That's not what I'm talking about. I'd love for you to, if you're not in the habit of coming to church, love for you to be here. I think it's important. I think we, I think we ought to be if we can be in church every single week, to hear God's Word, to fellowship with other people who hopefully will encourage us that there are other folks out there trying to live it as well, but if it's just a box to check for you, then it's ritualistic. James talks about useless religion. 
being ritualistic. It's kind of focused on jumping through the right hoops, maybe just to appease our own conscience. You been there? Seen anybody like that? They, they'll go. They just kind of make themselves feel better. I'll show up. I'll serve. I'll do something nice for somebody. I'll feel better because I did that. And certainly that's a byproduct, but a lot of times that can become ritualistic. This useless ritualistic religion is often done when other people are looking. And when they're not looking, who cares? Well, I'm standing next to the pastor, so maybe I ought to act like a Christian. Or I showed up to church today, so I better act right. Or, oh, I see that person across the restaurant, you know, I guess I better act the right way. And it's a lot of times based upon when people are around. But that quickly gets boring and meaningless, just going through the rituals. You ever been there before? You just think there's got to be something more than this. Are you kidding you know, I, I go to church each and every week, and I, you know, I try to read the Bible every once in a while, and it just, it's just all boring and empty to me. What's going on? Why do you think there's something more like that? There are a lot of people like that. You're probably here this morning, lots of folks who are just like that. Religion to you, your relationship with God, has become ritualistic. It's become meaningless almost. James would say it's useless religion. Yeah, I thought about it. Why, why is it that so many kids, when they graduate from high school, you can't get them back to church even if you paid them to come? You, you couldn't get them back, I heard one pastor say, with a pizza party and a stick of dynamite. It wouldn't make any difference. You couldn't get them back. Why is it? You know, I, I wonder if, if church to them was nothing more than just rituals, just something they showed up to on Sundays. Never got the idea that this isn't church, that you and I are the church. They never got that. They never got past the rituals of checking off the boxes of saying, well, I went this Sunday, and then, okay, I showed up to the youth group on Wednesday, and check, 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 check. And that seemed to be all that anybody was concerned with, that I just showed up at the right times and acted the right way when they were around. Sometimes wonder if maybe for young people it was nothing more than rituals. Or maybe that nothing more than a ritual was modeled for them at home. And parents, this is where it gets a little bit, someone would, would tell me, you know, you stopped preaching and you started meddling right there. But let me tell you, if all our children, if all our young people see is this ritualistic Sunday, maybe Sunday evening, maybe Wednesday night only kind of religion, it's useless. It's useless. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't come. Please understand my heart. But if that's all it is, James says, it's useless. What's the point? Why do so many children leave the home never to return to their church or their Christianity? Oftentimes because nothing was modeled at home but just, well, we went to church and we feel better and we live however we want during the week. And we'll go back to church and we'll feel better and we live however we want during the week. You follow me? Maybe those students, those young people, never saw what life with Jesus on the inside is all about. All they saw was rules and checklists and things you do just out of ritualistic habit. And they never saw somebody. They never saw a church family who had Jesus truly living in and through them, who changes lives, who doesn't just get you to church. So I praise God that you're here this morning. He doesn't just get you here, but he changes your life. 
and he reorients you to where he wants you to go, and it becomes so much of a full experience rather than this ritualistic, empty sort of habit. Useless religion is ritualistic. I believe it's also shallow. It's ritualistic. It's shallow. You know, by default, something that's ritualistic is shallow. Why do you do it? Well, I, just because? Because I do? Because it's a habit? Because mom and dad would get upset with me because, well, you know, my wife, my husband says I, they really like it when I go. And when I just, you know, typically becomes very shallow. Nothing more than just a, a false exterior. Just putting up a front. Nothing really has changed inside when it's just ritualistic. It becomes very, very shallow. As I stated before, you, you may read the Bible from time to time or throw up a prayer occasionally or volunteer every once in a while or toss some money in the offering plate and so on. But if those things only are out of mere habit and not based upon a deep internal change that Jesus Christ has orchestrated, James says it's, it's useless. It's getting you nowhere. And, and I, I would like to, I guess, give you a warning, give myself a warning. I really believe that in a, in a moralistic region like where we live, western Kentucky, sort of part of the Bible Belt, maybe we're the northern part, but we're still sort of part of it, in a very moral type of society in, in our part of the world, for the most part, crime rates are fairly low here in Murray and Callaway County. Lots of just really good people that are friendly and say hello to you, stop and talk and all of that. You understand what I'm saying? In a society like that, I really believe that it is easy to allow ritualistic, shallow, useless religion to run rampant because we're so focused on the fact that we're good moral people and we seldom maybe see the need for Jesus truly to get on the inside and change everything about us. Now, does that mean that? I'm encouraging you to go be an awful, nasty person because, well, I, no, no, not at all. I, I, I appreciate the low crime rates and the friendliness. I, I really do. I like that. But the danger is, if you see it, is in that we count that just being good as having a deep, loving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And sometimes we'll choose just goodness over true, deep godliness and we can develop very easily a sense of false religion. I think James warns us against that. He says, don't let your religion become useless. So he gives us the idea that useless religion is ritualistic, just habits, just doing certain things. And it's also shallow because it never gets on the inside. And then he compares that, I really believe, to authentic Christianity. You see on the right side of your bulletin. And it is based upon God's standard. It's based upon God's standard. What does he say? Pure, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before who? Before our God and Father. I love how he puts that. Not before the church, not before your parents, not before your friends and neighbors, but before our God and Father. As a result, who is the judge? God. I'm not the judge of your authentic Christianity. Certainly there are evidences, and I may say, well, hmm, that makes me wonder, or hey, seems to really be right on. But I'm not the ultimate the ultimate judge. Your, your goal, obviously, should not be to please the pastor with your religious activities. My goal should not be to please the church with my religious activities. 
but instead to realize that authentic Christianity, pure and undefiled, is according to God's standard, not the pastor's standard, not the church's standard, but God's standard. It's an objective standard. That's why, you know, I guess I sound like a broken record sometimes, and I probably will for as long as the Lord allows me to stay here. I'm going to continue to tell you, you have to get into God's Word. You have to, have to, have to, have to. You can come and listen to me every week. And I, you know, I appreciate when you're here, and I'm glad that we all want to hear God's Word. I understand where I'm coming from. But if you are not, each and every week, getting into God's Word, your life will see very little change. Very little change. Minuscule. You have to get into God's Word. Why? Because it is the standard. It will change your life. The Bible says it claims on its own. It is sharper than what? A two-edged sword. That means it cuts both ways. It shows you the good. It shows you the bad. It's going to reveal things that you may not want it to reveal, but it'll tell you also how you can have that stuff change. You have to get into God's Word. It is the objective standard. Just like last week. It's the mirror. Don't look at me for how you ought to be. Look at God's Word. And you'll see that. I'm just, I'm a dim reflection at best. As anybody out here would admit, I, you know, look at God's Word, you'll find out who God wants you to be. And so it's not about rituals to God. I really believe that the Bible shows over and over, particularly in the Old Testament, when God deals with the people of Israel, that God hates ritualistic and shallow religion. He hates it. It's just based on traditions that really that have no meaning. He hates that stuff. I really believe it. The only way that we can truly please Him is to operate by His standards, call us to a deep internal change, which is the next thing. Authentic Christianity is shown because it's, based upon God's standard, and then it also involves that deep internal change. God is looking for something more than ritualistic, shallow religion. In Isaiah, just write down the reference, I'll turn to it and read it to you. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. God says here to the people through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 13 of chapter 29. The Lord said, Because these people approach me with their mouths to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me, and their worship consists of man-made rules learned by rote memorization. Therefore, I will again confound these people with wonder after wonder. The wisdom of their wise men will vanish, and the understanding of the perspective will be hidden. God says, you, you got it backward. He tells the people of Israel, I'm not looking for you just to sacrifice and just to check off all the boxes of your religious activity and just to talk about the fact that we know and love God. He says, I'm looking for your heart. What does he say? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Well, maybe that's just an Old Testament thing. Write down this reference, Matthew chapter 15. Verse 6, Matthew 15, verse 6. I love how Jesus comes back and the same thing is what he tells the Pharisees. In this way, he says, you have revoked God's word because of your tradition. Hypocrites, verse 7, he says, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain teaching as doctrines the commands of men. He says, I'm not looking for you just to try to do all the right things. I want you to be the right person, and that starts in your heart. 
church on the inside, the seat of your emotions and your will and the direction of your life. Jesus backed that up. God is looking at the heart, and that is where authentic Christianity begins, with a heart that's been transformed to be like God's heart, to feel and to care about the things that He cares about, and then to be controlled by Him in everyday life, to be directed by God. That's what authentic Christianity is. And so He says in James chapter 1, Pure and undefiled religion, the kind of faith, the kind of religion God is looking for operates by his standards and it emanates from this deep internal change. So how do you know which one you are? How do you know, is my religion useless or is there authenticity about my Christianity? James gives us three categories and they're these. You'll see them in the boxes. Your language, your love, and your lifestyle. Before you put your bullets in a way and all of that, there are some empty spaces there underneath those words, and I'd like for you to take your own notes based upon what God says to you in the next few closing minutes about your language, about your love, and about your lifestyle. Look with me again at verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious, that word religious talking about the external stuff that you do, the hoops you jump through, if anyone thinks he is religious without what? Controlling his tongue, but but deceiving his heart, his religion is useless. So he includes language here. And he can tell a lot about a person, uh, what they say over over time. You know, eventually, what's inside is going to come out. You, you know somebody like that? You know, they, 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 they for a time they put on the right show. They can they they can you know say the right things. But eventually, though, good or bad. Good or bad, what is on the inside of you is going to come out. You can't fool everyone for long, even in your religious type of speech. It's, it's been stated that the average person uses 18,000 words per day. 18,000. Some of you are, are bringing the average up. Some of, some of you, you know, you're balancing things out a little bit. You're quiet folks. Sometimes I'm one that brings the average way up. You know, that's... And there's really no difference between men and ladies from the study that I, that I saw. So, guys, you can't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything because my wife takes, you know, 36,000 words a day. She took all mine, you know. And so I just better not talk, you know. And that's our communication problem is she just takes all my words. And that's not it. You realize those 18,000 words a day are equal to a 54-page book? Think about that for a second. Every day, your words write a 54-page book. How about going back and reading that every day? What would you see? Which which, which pages would you just like to tear out and say, mm. or, or get out the, the the white out and just sort of mark that word out, <laughs> or that whole paragraph? You know what? Insert. I lost my mind right here. You know, something like that. I mean, fifty-four page book every single day, which which means that's sixty-six eight hundred page volumes in a year. 800 pages, line them up, 66 of them. That's how many words you speak every year. One-fifth of your life, it's estimated, will be spent talking. How about that? I'm sure that the percentage of listening is probably a lot less than that, you know. Well, the power of words, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 says, that words have the power of life and death. Well, you can build up and you can tear down. Isn't that true? Your words carry tremendous 
power. James highlights that. If you think you are religious, if you think you're really following God, but you don't control your tongue, you are deceiving yourself, and your religion is useless. Words have tremendous power, and they also have tremendous significance. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus tells the Pharisees that you speak out of the overflow of your heart. Hmm. Your words reveal what's really in your heart, good or bad. Those 54 pages of a day, not just what you're saying, but that's what you're thinking, that's what you're feeling, that's the direction of your life. It's in your heart. James will later, and we'll see this in a few weeks, he highlights the danger of, of our words. Look with me in, in James, maybe you have to turn the page, James chapter 3. Look at verse 3, and we'll, we'll get to more of this, we'll, we'll look at this in depth in a few weeks. He says, now when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, verse 4, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too... Though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. How about that for some strong words about our words? James says, your words can be dangerous. He says, so evidence of a heart that's changed by God comes out in language that has been changed by God. And so he says, evaluate your words. Ephesians gives us some instruction on words. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, right down the reference. Paul writes, no rotten talk should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. How many pages would you write with words like that? One, ten, would it be 54 words, 54 pages of words that it, that it says are not rotten talk, but only what is good for building someone up in need so that it may give grace to those who hear? Listen, I'm telling you what, my book wouldn't be 54 pages long, I guarantee you that. There's no way. I'd struggle to write, write ten some days. You with me on that? Good grief. What if, what if we understood the power of our words, their significance, their danger, and, and then lived by the instruction. James, again, verse 126, says, Our religion is useless if we don't control our tongue because it reveals that our heart is not controlled by God. So I challenge you and encourage you to let God lead your words this week. Let God lead your words. He starts by obviously leading your heart, which then comes out of what you say. Let him lead your words this week. And see how many of those 54 pages you can fill up with words that build up and encourage, that are not rotten, the Bible says. They give grace to those who hear. Let God lead your words. So James says one category you can look at and say, am I really doing the word of God? Is my Christianity authentic? Is our language. The next is in our love, verse 27. He says, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this. Here's what God is looking for. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. Love for someone else. These folks obviously were the neediest. Those left without parents. Those left without a spouse. There was no life or health or any kind of other insurance back there in those days. 
So this is a big deal for those folks. James speaks to the neediest people that the church folks would come into contact with. And he says, look, you want to know what God really wants from you? A heart that is set on loving the people that God loves, the people who are the neediest. He says to look after, and that's more than maybe your version says to visit the, the orphans and widows and their distress. That, that word visit doesn't mean just occasionally stopping by or making a phone call or saying, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. That means actually taking them under your wing, so to speak. The root word of that is, is the, word, the, the word that equals pastor or shepherd. It's to pastor them along. It's to help them. It's to be with them in a continual way. It means a long-term commitment to meeting their needs. True love is displayed in that selfless, action-oriented behavior. That certainly involves maybe sacrifice and genuine concern, going the extra mile for someone. It's obviously loving those that God loves, loving just like he loves. You see the example of Jesus, that he befriended sinners, that he was someone who hung around the people that nobody else liked, that the religious folks of his day said, why would you associate with them? Jesus, God in human flesh, did just that, associated with people that nobody else cared for, people that were far from God, sinners, how dare we as Christians or as a church disassociate ourselves from people like that when our Savior, the one whose name we bear as Christians, did just that? How dare we do that? Isn't it easy to disassociate ourselves, to say in words that we love but not in our actions? There are many people who are needy. Not like us sometimes, who maybe don't act right or know the rituals that we know, or maybe they're far from God. They are in distress, great need, and that includes their lostness, being far from God, lost forever from Him. We have an upcoming opportunity to reach out to people who are just like that. On, on the aisle, middle aisle side of every row, if you're, if you're sitting there uh, or close to there, you look down for just a second in the little tray that holds the offering envelopes. And you'll see a set of cards that look like this. I want you to grab one of those and, and pass it down. Take, take one or two per person. And so if you're close enough to reach it, if you can, I appreciate that. Just grab one and, and pass it down all the way to the end if you can. And what you'll have in your hand is a Vacation Bible School invitation card. It's not a ticket, and certainly doesn't cost anybody any money to come, but this is just an easy way for you to invite somebody and to put in their hands a reminder that they can look back at that and know where to go to get information, know when things start, what age group it's for, and so on. My, my prayer for our Vacation Bible School this year is that we are not concerned just about, though we obviously are just about, getting the kids who are already here to come to Vacation Bible School. I hope they all come. I think it's great. I think if they did, they'll benefit from it. If you've got children, I pray and hope that you'll send them to Vacation Bible School. But let me tell you this. If we are going to love like God loves, we have to not only include them, but look past ourselves, look past the walls of Elm Grove Baptist Church, and make sure that children who are maybe a little different, maybe in need, maybe folks we've never met before, maybe whose families are lost and running from God, who may not act right when they come, who will have trouble controlling while they're here, but who God loves and Jesus died for. And we will do all we can to get them to 
vacation Bible school. Maybe they're one opportunity the whole year to hear about Jesus. Maybe they're one opportunity to be around a bunch of adults who have maybe trouble controlling it, but love them anyway. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? I hope that each of you, I don't care what age you are, what your stage of life is, young, old, in between, whether you're at work every day, whether you're not, whether you have, whether you see kids on a regular basis, I hope you'll take at least that one card. And you'll find one family who's not at Elm Grove. Don't hand it to one of our kids when you go over there. They already know about it. But one kid, one family, you'll say, you know what? That's my family I'm going to talk about. i got two weeks. i got two weeks to figure out how can I get them here. And I'm going to give them the information. And I'm going to do it over and over and over. There are more cards that will be in the back. If you need more, grab them. If we need to order more, we'll do it. We have a, a tremendous opportunity to put in a sense our faith where our mouth is and say, you know what, Lord, we're going to love people who are not here. We're going to love people who are here, and we're going to do it as best we can, and we're going to tangibly do it by trying to get kids who maybe are a little bit different in great need to come to VBS. It's easy to provide something or to invite the kids that we prefer. I really think that true biblical godly love, the way that God loves, acts toward people and children that we don't prefer. If God loved only those he preferred, who were sinless and perfect, he would love only himself. And all of us would be out of luck and forever doomed to hell apart from him. But I praise God. God loves not only himself, who obviously is preferable to us, but he loves even us. And we should do nothing less than exactly the same thing. Our authenticity as Christians will be seen through our love and then finally through our lifestyle. He says, keep oneself unstained by the world. Your language is important because it reveals what's in your heart. Your love is important because it reflects how God loves your lifestyle is important because that's really what Christianity is. It's about a lifelong commitment to godliness. It may begin with a one-time prayer. It may begin with that one moment of crescendo where you say, I realize my sin and I turn my life over to God. But it is not just that. It is a lifelong commitment to godliness. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. There's not a single one of us in here that can claim that since I've been a Christian, I've never sinned. Not at all. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about what direction is your life headed? What are you caught up in? Godliness or worldliness, as James says? What are you caught up in? Authentic Christianity involves being, James says, unstained by the world. Does that mean you can't drive cars? I mean, you shouldn't go to work? Does that mean you, you shouldn't go to Walmart or wherever? No, not at all. That's not what it means. That means as you do those things, as you live your life, that you would not conform to the pattern that the world has, the world, that life without God, the world's thinking, its standards, its pursuits, its vision of success. The world is about more. The world is about me and no absolutes. You just make it up as you go along. The Bible is completely different than all that. It's a countercultural way to live. Christianity goes against the culture. Does that mean that we just get fired up and yell and scream at everybody? No, but our lives reflect it. We're headed in a different direction than the stream that's flowing so rapidly. So I ask you, what, what directs you? How are your decisions made in your work, in your money, at your school, 
with your entertainment choices? Single people with your dating. How are your decisions made? Is it based on what you feel and now well, just kind of seems like the right thing to do? Or do you live by the objective standard of God's Word? Are you unstained by the world's thinking and standards and goals and dreams or having your life directed by God's Word? In every area of your life, I want you to know this, you're going to choose either godliness or worldliness. There's no, there's no middle ground. You're either choosing God's way or some other way, and it's all the other ways are combined into worldliness. You're choosing godliness or worldliness. So in your work, in your home, at your school, your entertainment choices, in what you say and how you live and how you love and so on, you're either choosing to live and to operate by God's standard, by godliness, or by worldliness. There's no middle ground. The Bible leaves no middle ground whatsoever. You see there at the bottom of your bulletin. Sort of the one overarching thought. What can I take? How can I remember this? Authentic Christianity involves deep internal change that is revealed in one's language, love, and lifestyle. So has your heart been changed by God? Does he really control it? Is your religion useless or is your Christianity authentic? So take a look this morning at your language and your love for people in great need who maybe you don't prefer. Take a look at your lifestyle. What controls you? What filter you use to make decisions and so on? Is God in charge of those categories, in charge of your language, your love, your lifestyle? Is he in charge? Or maybe you've settled for a useless form of religion. You realize God has more planned and more in store for you than you can ever imagine? Just as the song says, we'll never, we'll never experience those things until we trust and obey. Throw ourselves fully on Jesus Christ. He loves you. He desires only the best for you. He's not trying to steal your life and take it away. He wants you to experience life to the fullest. That'll never happen until you trust Him. Maybe for some of you, you need to give your life to Him this morning. You say, you know what? I, I'm just I'm, I'm good at jumping through hoops and following rules. But you know, I, I know my heart's empty. And I, you know, I know Jesus really doesn't live in there. I talk about it, and you know, I show up at the right times. But let me tell you, I, I know. God's not waiting to beat you up. He's not waiting to say, well, I told you so. I think he's just saying, what are you waiting for? Don't put it off. If you've never given your life to Jesus, what are you waiting for? He stands ready to forgive, ready to extend his arms to you. He died for you and loves you and wants only the best. But you have to come to him on his terms. And that's not by trying to earn it. That's just by trusting and believing in him. Admitting, you know what, I've messed up, and I need forgiveness. Jesus, that would save me. Only those who really and truly give themselves to Jesus will experience God's best. Our authentic Christianity is revealed as our useless religion is in our language. So God, lead my words this week. It's revealed in our love, so God, burden me for those in great need. And it's revealed in our lifestyle... And we say, God, I choose godliness over worldliness. God, give me a heart like yours. Control my heart. Change me. Won't you pray with me? So our heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want you to quickly just evaluate. 
yourself based upon the scripture. What James says, how's, how's your language? What does it reflect about your heart? What does your 54-page book every day say about what's going on in your heart? Is, is a change needed? And it needs to start in your heart. Maybe your prayer is, Jesus, change, change my heart. Lead my words this week. As you love for those in great need, maybe those you don't prefer, would you say, Lord, burden me, drive me to action for those people? As your lifestyle, what controls you? How are your decisions made? Would you say that your lifestyle is that of righteousness and godliness or probably maybe more of worldliness? What is it? Do you need to ask Jesus in your life this morning? Call out to him, he'll answer. You ask him to come in and he'll enter every single time. He's perfect to save. He will not let you down. If you've never given your life to him this morning, I pray that you do it before you leave. And walk away changed, a different person, with a different outlook, and the possibility of life to the fullest. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for how it reveals to us who you are and who we are and how we can get to you. Pray, Lord, that you would guide us this week in our language, in our love, and in our lifestyles. May ours be authentic Christianity, both as individuals and as a church. May it not be false religion. May it not be useless religion based upon just rituals and shallowness. But God, may we have deep internal change with you controlling our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name.